Chapter 10, Africa. We had fallen into a rhythm at home, us Luther girls. Evenings were something to look forward to. It felt like what families feel like. We went shopping over at the Jitney Jungle for local vegetables. They had good fresh kale and greens, carrots and potatoes. Grace was a good cook, but had told us it wasn't always like that. Clyde had taught her back when they were married and lived in San Francisco. He made navy beans with his secret ingredient, Heinz ketchup. He had learned how from kitchen detail when he was in the Navy. Whenever I'd eat navy beans, it would always cause me to think about Korea. Back during my earlier childhood, we had seen some hard times, but we always ate good. Clyde had grown up poor during the Depression. It was especially rough in East Texas, and they tried to make ends meet by farming. The Luther kids all picked cotton, and Clyde said they went to bed hungry more often than not. They didn't even have shoes to wear in the winter, and once a tornado had blown the roof of their house off. It was little more than a shack, their house. I had seen a picture of it once with Clyde and all the Luthers standing out front in their overalls. Clyde was tow-headed with solid white hair. Grace used to say movie stars paid a fortune to get their hair that color of platinum blonde. Grace had come from a more affluent background since Woody had his good job at the newspaper. He'd always tell stories about when the paper tried to unionize. Once, he had been chased all the way home by some men beating a rusty hoist chain at him. He also had stories about when he had hopped a freight like Woody Guthrie to find work in New Mexico. He said times were real tough during the Depression and men did a lot of things to feed their families, but I didn't ask him what. My grandmother Babe was a grand lady. Everybody had always called her Babe, so we did too. Grace had fallen out with her parents due to the drinking and her mental illness but mainly it was due to her love of Negroes. That was a rift that nobody could repair. Grace refused to budge an inch. Everybody was very opinionated about those kinds of things, and neither side was willing to give. Okay, let's read it over. That was a rift that nobody could repair. Grace, refu Grace refused to budge an inch. Everybody was very opinionated about those kinds of things, with neither side willing to give. Everybody concerned was rigid to a fault. Grace was always passionate about anything related to civil rights. You could almost time her spells to something that had happened on the national stage. When I was in the third grade, a bomb killed four little girls in Alabama, and Grace went into a very deep depression. She had to be hospitalized after Martin Luther King was killed. Woody and Babe never understood her feelings. Once, the cops raided a Negro bar downtown, and Grace was hauled off to jail. Woody had to go her bail and drive down there and pick her up. I had never seen him so white-lipped mad, and there'd been some talk about taking me away from her over it. The town didn't like it either. Somebody had thrown a rock through our window once with a note rubber banded around it that said, Get out of town, nigger lover. There was blood on the rock and busted glass from the window everywhere. Something I had noticed at the time. 
Hate didn't seem to amalgamate with good grammar, and I didn't even want to venture a guess where that dried blood had come from. Why couldn't Grace fly below the radar? Her political feelings caused her as much heartache as they had us. It seemed like a sound idea to keep your leanings out of the public eye. You can't ever argue with a lynch mob. Insanity wasn't confined to our household. There were all kinds of crazy people walking around Beaumont, and I had seen some things. People most likely excused the insanity if you had money and we didn't. They called rich people eccentric and poor folks crazy. Dinner, girls, Grace yelled out. But you really didn't need to holler in that little house. She was still in her work clothes and had a little bit of perspiration on her forehead. I never got sick of looking at her. Even at her worst, she was a natural beauty. She had clear skin the color of a cut open almond, smooth to the touch. Her eyes were bright and almost an aquamarine color, not really blue or green, and that blonde hair. Look, hamburgers. They smelled as good as they tasted, Grace's burgers. I could eat them every day. She cooked the best ones I'd ever eaten, and I'd eaten a lot of hamburgers. Back in Beaumont, we'd order TNF Bigger Burgers and Fries every Friday night and eat watching the Wild Wild West. I'd often tried to fry my own as good as hers, but never could master it. There was something to that old saying about somebody else's cooking always tasting better than your own. In this case, it was the truth. It felt good to sit at the dinner table with Willie and Grace eating burgers, like a real home. I almost forgot about the bad times. I almost forgot about Craighead. I woke up slow. It was barely light when I swung my feet to the floor. Wake up, Wills. I said it to the sound of my own voice and her soft snoring. All she did was groan. I pushed open the door to the living room and saw Grace sprawled on the couch. She was face down with her arm dragging on the floor. I shook her and she didn't stir. I felt that old fear in the pit of my stomach. Wake up, I said, nudging her. She looked dead. She finally let out a groan. What time is it? It's still early, I said. You thought I was passed out drunk. Grace wiped the sleep out of her eyes and looked at me. There was a sadness there. I'm sorry. She picked up the little alarm clock and pushed the pen in. It hasn't even gone off yet. We were both quiet for a couple of minutes. I told you things were going to be different here, Jody. I'm trying hard. I know you are. I didn't understand about nervous breakdowns and adult pressures, but I did know about pain. I could see that she was hurt. There was something in me that wanted to protect her from hurting. I didn't know if it was because I was a good person or because I was afraid she'd go off again. There didn't seem to be an answer. What I did know is I'd reached a point where it was going to take more than eating a burger in front of the TV to make me happy. Willie was gobbling down her Fruit Loops like there was no tomorrow when Grace joined us in the little kitchen. She was ready for work and wearing a Scottish tweed linen dress and matching jacket Babe had picked out for her. 
It made me smile to remember how Babe shopped for clothes that she hoped would make Grace look like a respectable school teacher. Grace looked more like an actress playing the role of a school teacher. I wanted to tell you Liz and her family are having dinner with us Friday. All right? I made a face. Willie stopped munching and had a red fruit loop stuck to her cheek. You're kidding, right? Grace picked the cereal off Willie's face and put it in her own mouth. She poured herself a cup of coffee and said, I know they're not our type of people, but they've been real good to us. Liz is a very dear friend. Willie looked right at her. I don't like them. I know they're a hard bunch to get to know, but we owe them our thanks. She sounded like she was trying to convince herself as well as me and Willie. That mama dear, Willie said. Which one, I asked, and I meant it sarcastic. Grace took a sip of the hot black coffee and set the cup back into its saucer. Listen, I'll make you girls a deal. You help me entertain the Duprees Friday, and Saturday we'll take a trip to town and see that zoo y'all have been going on about. How does that sound? We'll have a real girls' day. I had to admit it sounded nice. She drove a hard bargain. It was almost worth putting up with the Duprees to get a family day out of the deal. Still, I felt resentful about giving up Clyde and Babe and Woody for the Duprees. It didn't seem fair. The neighborhood was filled with interesting houses, high-toned like Granny used to say. Willie and I marched along like we had a purpose, that of getting ourselves to school. I looked inside the homes when we passed like I like to do. I wondered what kind of families lived up inside of them. Did they have any secrets like us? Or were they like the Duprees? The idea of more Duprees made my stomach want to lurch. I slowed down for a minute to look at the big Tidewater porch with rocking chairs and a swing. You had to walk up the wide front steps to get to it. I wondered if they sat outside and drank iced tea with mint sprigs in it. That seemed to me what you should do on a porch like that. But today it was empty. They had one of those special attachments on the mailbox with Clarion Ledger printed in black letter gothic script. Willie said, Hey, how long do you think we're going to be here? What do you mean, how long? I mean in Jackson. Are we ever going to go back home? Hearing it out of her mouth made me feel sad. I guess we are home. This is our new home. She seemed satisfied, but you couldn't always tell with Willie. She'd say one thing, and then she'd cry over nothing. Big money homes populated the neighborhood. It made me think about Babe when we'd go on a Sunday dream drive and house hunt. She told me all about the different architectures, Georgian, Prairie, Victorian. She hated Tudor and said it was nothing less than stupid looking in a hot place like Beaumont. I missed her and Woody living right across the street from the movie house and the stores. I missed going to the kitty show by myself while she smoked a cigarette and watched me from her chair at the window. I would always turn around one more time and she'd blow a smoke ring at me. It was cold and dry that morning. You could hear the few old dead leaves left clinging to the trees crackle when the wind whipped at them. There was something foreboding in the air and it made me shudder. I wondered where it'd come from. 
I gave myself a silent talking to like I did. Grace was at work teaching, and all I had to do was put one foot in front of the other. All I had to do was get Willie to school over at Diva Brown and then myself to Murrah. Simple enough, I said to myself. I wondered about the people back in Beaumont for a minute. What were all my old classmates up to? I wondered if they missed me or if they thought I'd died. We'd left out of there so quick in the middle of the night. I looked at Willie and felt bad for how I'd treated her in the past. She had had it even worse than me. I had stolen a part of her innocence, and for that I would never forgive myself. It had been on one of Grace's bad spells. She had been drinking and out God knows where. Willie had been complaining all day and refused to eat her hamburger. It was all I knew how to cook, and I'd been mad. I fried it in the pan, and the frozen meat was still cold and red in the middle. It was awful, and nobody would want to eat that food. I had been angry and lost my temper. I hit Willie on the face so hard it left a red mark. You could see my handprint on her cheek. The sound of it was loud, like a pistol had gone off. And it wasn't the only time, either. Willie was forgiving, as was her nature. She told me it was okay and said I could hit her again if I needed to. I took a hold of Willie's hand. I couldn't wipe out the past, but I could try to make today a good day. What's wrong, she asked. Nothing, I'm just remembering. Willie's nose was covered with big freckles from a bad sunburn in Galveston. She said, you're always thinking. She was right. I was always thinking. Maybe I thought too much. When we arrived at her school, the kids were running and yelling in the playground. My nose caught a whiff of child sweat and dirt. That was a smell that never changed. It smelled the same everywhere. I'll come back at three, okay? I don't have to work today. Willie started to walk off and I called out to her, Willie? Yeah? She had that long brown hair of hers blowing around her face. She looked so small and helpless there with her little coat and book satchel. Willie was slow to make new friends. I figured it was due to her bright nature. She was always very smart, the kind of smart most people don't get. Most people are average, but Willie was special. I once saw her sitting by herself at a table out in the playground area of her school. The other children were running and laughing, but Willie sat all by herself. She was always one to entertain herself, but I knew she was lonely. It was sad to look at, but I never had mentioned it to her. Oh, nothing. Have a good day, okay? That time the Beaumont Independent School District suspended Grace had been hard on us. We had no money coming in other than the child support check Clyde sent each month. Grace couldn't understand what the problem was. She was only trying to teach the kids about Africa. That's what she told them. Today, we're going to learn about people in Africa. One kid had held up her hand and asked Grace if that wasn't where Negroes came from. Grace had told her yes, she was right, and she, and she was a very smart girl. But, she added, 
The Negroes you know here today are Americans. We are all Americans together now. The little girl, whose dad was a known KKK member around town, said, My daddy says they're not like us. Grace suggested they try to learn about Africa in class that day. She walked over to the world map, which the school provided, and pointed to a country colored in light green, peach, and lilac. See here? The Nile River is the second largest river in the world. The biggest one is the Amazon in South America. As you can see here on the map, it flows downward through Africa. As you can see here on the map, it flows downward through Africa from the Mediterranean Sea to Lake Tanganyika. See the water, children? Grace drew her finger across the map and pointed to the expanse of blue. And here is the Atlantic Ocean. Have any of you traveled to the Atlantic? That's when Grace said the part that caused the trouble. She said, well, imagine if somebody put you in that water and you never saw your parents or family ever again. That's what happened to the Africans who were brought over here to the United States and sold as slaves. Then she added, they were kidnapped. That had caused quite a commotion in town. I didn't think people would ever quit talking about it. Grace had to borrow money to get by on from Woody and Babe. They would bring it up every time. Grace would never back down. She'd just sit there pretty as you please and let them go on. She was not going to change her feelings, not for them, not for anybody. When Granny and the Luthers found out it was even worse, they'd go on and on the whole family like telling me about it was going to make any difference. Granny, religious to the extreme, always taught me to be very, very good or I would not get to go to heaven. I'd always ask her what heaven was like. The picture she conjured up for me was one of a totally white congregation with a lot of clouds and God overseeing it all. He sat on a huge throne and the people would sing songs all day in tribute. I would always ask where the animals went when they died and she told me animals had their own special place apart from where the humans went. To be honest, I considered that prospect grim to excess. I couldn't imagine all that singing with a group of devout white people. No birds, no animals, and only clouds. It sounded boring. Grace felt like it was her duty to teach the children all about people and their places. To tell the truth, I wish deep down Grace would keep her feelings to herself. Some minds just can't be changed. I knew one thing for sure, though. Here on earth wasn't heaven. Granny had also encouraged me to take home economics and typing because she said a girl like me wasn't going to get by on looks alone. In a strange way, Liz Dupree began to fulfill that void left in my life. She had me helping her with the groceries one afternoon. Janine usually does this for me, but I'd appreciate your assistance, dear. I said I didn't mind and began carrying two of the big brown Jitney Jungle bags into the big house. My goodness, this family requires a lot of care. She talked to me while she pulled out vegetables and meat from the bags. Here, put this over there on that tea service getting ready for the deep freeze. I placed the cold packages of meat on the green cart I'd seen Janine pushing on that first night. 
I nudged it a little and pretended like I was Janine for a second. Oh, my land, would you look at this sweet corn? Liz held up a package of the bright yellow ears to examine in the sunlight. She turned to me. Jody, I'll have to teach you how to make my corn salad. You're going to absolutely love it. Yes, you will. Well, I sure do like corn. We planted a lot of it at my grandparents back home in Texas, I told her. I remembered those hot spring days after the last frost, which was practically never, by the way. The only thing worse than sowing all that corn seed was harvesting it later in August when it was even hotter. One time, us kids got covered in corn worm, and Paul Luther scrubbed us in a hot bath, and then buck naked, he shook us down with the dog's flea powder. It stung like the dickens. Liz winked at me. My corn salad will help you get yourself a good man like Big Jim. He loves a corn salad. When I heard her say that, corn lost some of its appeal. I remembered the William Faulkner story, Sanctuary, and about the corn cob. It used to be my favorite vegetable, and I loved it fried. Now probably not so much. Before I could stop myself, I said, Sometimes I don't think I'll even marry. Honey child, you mustn't ever talk like that. Liz's jaw dropped wide open, and she channeled her best scarlet. I'm going to teach you how to make a proper corn salad if it's the last thing I ever do. You'll have your pick of bows. Just you wait and see. How are you ever going to have children and raise a family if you don't know the recipe for a corn salad? Of course I grill mine. It's my special secret. She put her finger over her lips to signify privacy like she always did. The idea of having children right then scared the pants off me. I didn't tell her I'd made up my mind at age 13 to never have kids no matter what. I'd told my aunts and they all said I'd change my mind that I'd see. But I knew I wouldn't. I was one of those people who considered every potential outcome. Like what if you ended up with a juvenile delinquent? It was like the people who always thought they had been reincarnated from great kings and queens and never the trash man or people who fish the creek for a living. Liz seemed truly shocked, so I tried to change the subject. I love your kitchen. Don't you really, dear? She looked around the room as a queen would survey her kingdom. Yes, I do. Green is my next favorite color. The kitchen was mint green with cream appliances trimmed in black. There were pictures of vegetables and herbs with their names printed in French handwriting. I love mint. Everything, of course, comes from porters and all. Fresh and new. The screen door swung open and closed halfway and held itself open out of gratitude to the silver pump door closer. It looked like that old can of bug spray that Paul Luther would hand treat the crops with. Jim Jr. stood there for a minute, his fat cheeks flushed, beads of filthy sweat covering his forehead and neck. His immaculate academy blazer and gray pants were crimped and soiled. The sewn patch on his pocket looked like some sort of crest containing a cross, the U.S. flag, and an open Bible. I didn't want him to catch me looking at it too long, though, so I turned my gaze down to the floor. Oh, son, are you just getting home from school? Liz passed an arm with a delicate diamond wristwatch past her eyes, but not long enough to register the time. 
She reminded me of the Natchez River Festival each year in Beaumont when the queen and her ladies-in-waiting would float down the river on a barge and wave at everybody. Uncle Coy, who hated things like that, always used to ask who wanted to be a queen of a dirty old river anyways. Oh, son, are you just getting home from school? Liz passed an arm with a delicate diamond wristwatch past her eyes, but not long enough to register the time. It's so late. Liz drug out the word late as if to make a point. Leave me alone, Jim Jr. said in a frightening loud voice. He pushed himself past his mother and glared at me. Then he shoved me out of the way and grabbed a whole entire package of Hostess Cherry Sweet Rolls off the table. He tried to cram it into the old army rucksack slown around his side. Boy, that satchel of his stunk, too. I smelled iron like when something has bled a lot. Intermingled with Jim Jr.'s own sour body odor, the smell caused me to retch. Then I saw something horrible. It was only for a split second, but I saw something. The unmistakable yellow fur of an animal was shoved in the bag and caused my blood to run cold. Liz said, Now then and all, Tone! She said it in a timorous fashion, obviously not wishing to set him off further. Jim Jr. looked right at me, ignoring his mother, and said, What are you doing in here? He stared directly into my eyes like a challenge. I didn't say anything. Liz tried to pass it off as a lady who's been trained to maintain elegance at all costs. Charm school, like Babe used to make us do at the dinner table. We all had to sit and eat and talk like we were at Amy Vanderbilt's house and eating a meal in Miss Vanderbilt's dining room, even Woody. Liz went about her housewifely duties, putting away groceries like nothing unusual had happened. Your daddy will be home any minute now, so we'll be dining a la diner tardif. She said it like the kind of diner you eat in on the side of the road, but with what she probably thought was a French accent. Jim Jr. rolled his eyes dramatically at her. It was the universal movement of an annoyed teenager, but in Jim Jr.'s case, something deeply wrong was afoot. It was a warning sign of things to come, bad things. Liz didn't seem to notice Jim Jr. had left the room. She calmly walked across the kitchen to the set of green cabinet doors to the right of the back window. I could see the dark red stripes on the awning as she opened the door and pulled out a bottle of medicine. She shook it, removed the cap, and dropped two pills into her open palm. She stopped as if making a mental choice and poured two more into her hand before replacing the bottle. Let me offer you some juice, Jody. You must think I'm some awful hostess. She opened up the big refrigerator door and pulled out a bottle of Delaware punch and a bottle of wine. After she poured herself a nice full crystal goblet full, she took a long swallow to down the pills. Now, Jody, about Easter. But before she had a chance to start, the back door flew open with a bang, and Big Jim stomped his Wellingtons into the kitchen. Crusted mud flew off all over the spotless flooring as he strode over to the table. I couldn't help but notice one of his pant legs was tucked inside the boot a sign back home noting the birth of a new calf. 
I wondered what it meant here. He slammed several brown paper bags with big grease spots down on the table, almost tipping over Liz's wine glass. I brought home nigger barbecue. Liz's eyebrows arched as they did when the word was used, but this time she went ahead and let it go. Oh dear, I was going to broil some ribeye. No, nothing better than nigger barbecue. Jim, big Jim laid his big hot paw on my shoulder. Man can eat his fill, right, Jody? Yes, sir, I answered. I guess so. I tried to stand up, but the force of his hand kept me seated. He pressed down hard to keep me from moving. Mama, get me a drink. He was speaking to Liz, but his eyes stayed fixated square on me. Liz hopped up like a spry bunny and began fidgeting with the dumbwaiter, which seemed to also serve as a portable cocktail bar. They had an ice bucket, like in the movies, with a pair of silver tongs she used to fill up a large tumbler. Big Jim took his drink and poured a big gulp of it down his throat while standing behind my chair, his hand still on my shoulder. I could hear the liquid flowing down his gullet. His body made loud noises as he ingested the liquor greedily. It smelled like the way when somebody sweats a lot and it takes over the, all the air in the room. His body musk and the smell of whiskey filled my nostrils and I fought down the urge to vomit. Mmm, needed that. He set down the glass in front of me. It was barely half full and already leaving a ring of moisture on the table. How about you have a little taste, Jody? Oh, now she's a child. And that's a man's drink. Liz sounded shocked, but also timid. Big Jim cut her off. She's a big girl now, near a woman. Come on, Jody, have you a little taste. He prodded me on the back of my neck. I recognized the smell of Canadian club whiskey. I'd almost forgotten that time last year when Grace hadn't picked me up at school. I'd walked all the way home for miles. It took me two hours, and by the time I got to the house, I was plenty mad. I went straight to the kitchen where I knew she had that pint of Canadian Club. I threw a swig of it back and swallowed hard like I'd seen them do on TV. I'd never been so sick in my life as I was at that moment. That venom was putrid, and I knew its odor. It was like the stuff you put in a power motor to make it run. I could feel his stomach pressing on my back. It felt really uncomfortable, and I wanted to go home, but I couldn't get up out of the chair. He had me wedged tight between himself and the table. Come on now, gal. He picked up the glass again and put it inside my fingers. There you go, down the hatch. Like he was administering medicine. I lifted the glass to my lips, and it burned as it went down. Oh, dear. Liz looked worried. Grace is going to have my head on a plate. Big Jim cut her off. That's not going to happen. This gal needs to grow up, and her mama ain't doing her job right. He sounded angry. I knew one thing. I sure didn't want to see Big Jim when he got mad, and I could tell Liz didn't either. I choked and began to cough. Hey, none of that. Best remedy for that's another big swaller. I tried to put the glass down, but Big Jim wasn't having any of it. He pushed it back in my face and grabbed the back of my head with his other hand. There now, 
Easy does it. Let it slide down easy. Yeah, that's right. When he said the word easy, he began to rub my back in hard circles where Liz couldn't see. There you go, that's a good girl, he coaxed. I heard him make a groan noise. Mm-mm. He let it out like Andy Griffith used to in the Ritz Cracker commercial, but Big Jim didn't mean his like that. He meant it a completely other way, a bad way only adults know about. It made me good and nervous. All right, then, I got to get cleaned up. He headed off up the stairs as quick as he had busted through the back door before. Later, when I was home, it dawned on me what kind of cleaning up he was referring to. That house scared me more than ever, and I was terrified of Big Jim. There was a horror I'd read about in a James Dickey poem, The Sheep Child. It was something you didn't talk about, a wrongness that went beyond things that people went to hell over when they died. Big Jim and Jim Jr. were the wrongness in that poem. I'd memorized the first of it, so I'd never forget it. It started out about farm boys being wild a couple. The poem was a grisly thing. It was about a baby, half sheep, and half human dead in formaldehyde in the back room of a southern museum. He was the offspring of these old back country types and bestiality with his mother. It was about him not having a chance to live his life and dying a painful life there in the dirt. His poor mama, sore from rape and giving birth. The old farm boys go on to get married and raise their own families, like Big Jim, like Jim Jr. For me, that poem had real faces.